You may be seated. If you turn in your bulletin to the insert that's there, you'll see the passage printed for you. If you would turn in your pew Bible or your own personal copy of the Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, we're going to look at today in this series that I've entitled Christ Commissioned Unity, uh, based on the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that we would be one, even as He and the Father are one. And in doing so, that unity demonstrates the credibility of the message of the gospel, that reconciliation with God, peace with God, and unity with one another can be a reality because of what Jesus has accomplished. Now, the warning again this week, as it was the last time we were in Ephesians 4, is that Ephesians 4 comes after Paul sets a framework, a foundation of what's true about you in Christ. That's now where we hop in in chapter 4 in the what to do since you're in Christ. It can easily sound like today is just a bunch of what you got to do's, but that has to be the outflow of who you are in Christ, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but He made you alive, that you are saved by grace through faith. It's not a work of yours. It's a gift from God. So, that gracious gift of God is what's true for you, not because of anything you did to merit it. And you couldn't do anything to demerit it. But our works flow out of that grace that He has given us because He works in us to will and to do His good pleasure. He's prepared works beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we're going to look today at what we're called to do. But let's not forget what's true, that you are only a child of God because of His grace. Nothing you have done or could do would ever make that so. Follow along as I read Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he may fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word of truth that you have given us to sanctify us by your truth. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit's indwelling power in us, the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in us, in our mortal bodies, to make us die to sin and live 
unto righteousness. Lord, your Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of your Word. It makes sense because you make it make sense. And it's not only true for us, but it is also what we've been empowered to do, called to do by your grace. Lord, I pray this morning that you would build up the saints here gathered. Lord, that you would strengthen us for action. Lord, that you would empower us to do your will for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In this series that I've called Christ Commissioned Unity, we did look at John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, or the prayer that he prayed for our unity, but we also had understood that there are threats to the unity that Christ has saved us for, and James 4 outlines some of those threats. We looked at the danger of, of bitterness that can encroach in and keep us from being unified and how to battle that bitterness that creeps up. We looked at showing genuine love, how to judge justly, and each way looking for how that unity can be strengthened and built up, how to pursue and restore sinners, how to reconcile through forgiveness. We looked at last time we were together, maintaining the unity of the Spirit, being eager to maintain the unity of Spirit in here in Ephesians chapter 4. And today we're looking at then how this works together in building up the body of Christ. And that's what we are. We are saved sinners who are now placed into a body, each of us being members and Christ being that head. And so today I want us to look at what God has ordained, how God has put together the body and we as individual members so that we can grow in unity and then we can grow in stature, in maturity. He's given us grace. That is certain. He has given us gifts. He has given us spiritual leaders and saints. And then at the end here, he tells us how is it that these things work together in order to grow us in unity and in uh, maturity. So, we have to start at verse 7. And those of you who are very attentive may remember when you heard me preach last, we covered verse 7. But we got to start there again because it's so foundational. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, this is a message for those who are in Christ. This is a message for those who have been redeemed, who have been regenerated, who've been saved. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now this grace that saves us continues to work in us. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we may show the immeasurable riches of His grace. We get to show how gracious God is by the way that we live throughout our lives. We show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are His workmanship. He has saved us and created us for good works that we can glorify Him in a life of obedience. That is founded on His grace. 
that rich grace, that lavish grace, that grace according to verse 7, which is given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. How does Christ measure out gifts? Is He a stingy giver? Does He give out just barely enough? No, He's lavish with His grace. He's generous in His grace. First Peter 5.10 says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Maybe you're facing trials like the church that Peter wrote to. Maybe you're, you're suffering for a little while. The God of grace is there, and He is there to help you. He has called you to this suffering. He has called you to this trial for a purpose. In Hebrews 4.16 We see more about this grace that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's full of grace and truth. That's what we learn about Jesus. And that throne of grace is where He gives grace and He gives mercy because we need it so desperately. So, for His church, for His body, for the people here gathered to be united and to live out according to His plan, what it takes to grow us, what it takes to build us up, it has to be founded on His grace. Nothing you did made you worthy. It's only by His mercy and grace that He saves us. But He saves us and then gives us gifts. He doesn't just give us grace, He gives us gifts. And that's spelled out for us in verse 8. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led the hosts of cap- a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, that's quoting Psalm 68, 18. And Paul puts it in there with a little commentary of verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions in the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he may fill all things. What is Paul getting at here? Why is he quoting Psalm 68 in this way? Well, Psalm 68 is a psalm of victory uh, after a battle in which the ark is brought back to Mount Zion. It's brought back up onto the mountain peak, and the people of God are worshiping and praising God for the victory that He had given them in a, in a battle. And it was often true in antiquity that when a king would go out with his army and he would be victorious, he would come back and have with him in tow those that he's defeated, usually the kings that he's defeated, and then the spoils of war, the treasures that he was able to get by winning the victory. And when he brought the spoils back, he would give those as gifts to his generals and his soldiers and to the people just in light of his victory. And this, Paul ties together with what is going on with Christ. See, he was on his throne in heaven and humbled himself to become a man and suffer and die. But then God in the resurrection And his ascension exalted Christ again. And in that exaltation, he has given gifts to give to his people, to you and to me. I like what Spurgeon says about this uh, from Paul's use of Psalm 68. He said, The ark of the covenant was conducted to the summit of Zion. God himself took possession of the high places of the earth. The antitype of the ark, the Lord Jesus, has ascended into heaven 
with the single marks of triumph to do battle with our enemies, the Lord descended and left his throne. But now that the fight is finished, he returns to his glory. High above all things, he is now exalted. After this king wins his victory, he brings home the spoils. He gives gifts. It says in Colossians 2 that God has canceled out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The principalities and powers, the rulers in darkness, at the crucifixion of Christ, when it looked the bleakest, Christ was victorious. And that demonstrates to all the spiritual realm, to our realm as well, He is victorious. And all things have been subdued to Him. And then He can give those gifts. Those gifts are described as spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit. We see in a number of places, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, 4 to 7. For as in one body we have, been, we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are in one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Again, he roots it in grace. The gifts are given, and they're different types of gifts. He says, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are a variety of gifts, and some of them overlap in the different passages that we read about them, but it's important for us to realize this fundamental truth. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been given spiritual gifts, one if not many, And they're different from one another. Your gifting is different from your gifting from my gifting. But it's true. You've been given a gift, and it's been given for a purpose. It's for the edification of the body. It's for the building up of the body. I'd encourage you to ask God, what are your gifts? One of the tools that we've used quite often at Redeemer in Sunday school classes and other forums is something that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals puts out. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce uh, uh, wrote a little bit about how to identify and use your spiritual gifts. Really helpful, just kind of questions that help you narrow in which gifts that God may have given you and a helpful kind of definitions and scripture references at the at the end here for you can see so you can see what the gift of service or intercession or teaching or hospitality that you may have and how it's found in scripture there are a number of these in the back you can download it from their website i'm certain as well another way for you to really hone in on what your gifts may be is if you're a member at redeemer you're logged into our church community builder program that's our church directory and you can go on your profile look at your little picture i see my picture and i click on it three little dots in the middle when i click on that i pull down my fit you just got to remember my fit it has what the creators of this software have seen as the different spiritual gifts and even abilities and maybe your temperament and how those all can be used together to serve in ministry 
Check through those. See how God has wired you and gifted you in order to be of service because they have to be put into action. And that's where we see in verse, uh, in this next section, verse 11, the giving of spiritual leaders and saints. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So in this list of different leaders within the church, you're familiar with giving the apostles because Pastor Tony has been preaching through the book of Acts, and he spent a good portion of time describing what this office of apostle is, a special office in that first century for the revealing of God's Word and inscripturating it. And that's true for the prophets. The New Testament prophets were, throughout the book of Acts, used as mouthpieces of that Word until the time when though the Word and the Gospel was written down and put into Scripture. So those gifts are foundational for us. And then the gift or the spiritual leaders that are called evangelists are are like missionaries today, those who have been given a special ability to be able to communicate the gospel to people who have never heard, Uh, people who don't have a background and of knowing uh, the truth of Scripture, can hear an evangelist speak, and and the Lord uses them in a a special way to believe on the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that only evangelists have to share the gospel and the rest of us kick back. It, It means that you should always be ready to give an account for the hope that's within you. Uh, but God has specially gifted some spiritual leaders to be those frontline evangelists. He also has given the shepherds and the teachers. And the semantics of this are a little odd, and it's made some people think that it may be just shepherd teachers because there's only one article, the shepherds and teachers. And the conjunction word in the middle, and, is different than the others that were beforehand. So maybe it's shepherd teachers, or as some would call pastor teachers. That's your dual job description. But it could mean that there are two overlapping groups, that some people are pastors who teach, and some people are teachers, but they don't do the pastoring or the shepherding. What does shepherd mean? Well, I don't think we have anybody anybody in our congregation that raises sheep, but that would be literally what shepherd is. But Figuratively, we understand from Jesus' use of it, from the Old Testament use of this term, that it's someone who cares for a flock, and that flock being the people of God. And Jesus in John 10 is called the good shepherd. He lays his life down for the sheep. He's talked about as the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20, and the chief shepherd of the sheep in 1 Peter 5, 4. And so, the under-shepherds of the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, are the pastors that God raises up and gives to the church for a particular work. Teachers, communicating the truth of God's Word to the people of God, making sense of what you read in the Word of God and, and connecting it to your life. So, these spiritual leaders are given for a particular purpose, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, this is really important because what is equipping? Equipping is 
uh, in some context means to, to mend or repair, almost like uh, used of setting a broken bone or um, mending a net that would be used, fixing the hole so it's ready for use. If you think of equipping and the role of shepherds and teachers, of those spiritual leaders in the church, are to get you ready to do the work. You're equipped. And you are equipped as saints. The, the saints are the ones who are literally holy ones, the, the set-apart ones, the ones who God has saved for a purpose. He's called us out for a reason, to be members of this body of Christ. And so the spiritual leaders do the equipping. The saints are going to do the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. I think we have it kind of backwards sometimes in our thinking about church, that churches will have a group of saints that get together, and they hire a pastor and leaders to do the work. And that's not the biblical model that Paul lays out before us. The job of those spiritual leaders is to equip the saints for that work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. That, that building up the body is a, another metaphor that Paul kind of mixes. It's a building construction metaphor. This body of Christians is a, is a house, and we need to be building up these blocks and growing us up but it's also a body that's connected together with Christ as the head. This is pretty revolutionary, I think, for some people to think of the way that God has ordered His church to grow and to to, to expand is that He would give us grace. He would give each individual gifts, then appoint spiritual leaders to equip you to go do the work. You're the hands and feet of Christ doing the work that He has called you. The job of your pastors and your elders and your deacons are to help you and equip you, get you ready to go out and do the work. Wow. That sounds a little daunting sometimes, but that's the way God has ordered it. And what's going to happen? Verses 13 to 16 shows us how this unity and how this growth actually do happen. Look at verse 13. There's three like, in three respects where we're, we're growing. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, what is this unity of faith? I think in this context, in the context of the New Testament, is that we confess the same faith, the same doctrine. In Jude, verse 3, he calls the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That's the objective use of the word faith, that the collection of teaching and doctrine that we've been given by the apostles and prophets, you're going to grow in unity around that. You're going to be all in one accord with that teaching. But then also, beyond the teaching of the faith, comes the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, isn't that just more information? Isn't that just more doctrine? Isn't that just more facts? I don't believe so. I think Paul talks about the knowledge of the Son of God in a very personal and intimate way, not in a cold calculation of the facts about who Jesus was. It's who is Jesus to you, experientially. When the Bible talks in in the book of Psalms about taste and see that the Lord is good, 
That's the kind of experience of a relationship, of a knowledge that's so intimate that it changes you. I don't know about you, but on my social media feed, I'll get uh, recipes that come up on video. You'll see this beautiful dish of food, and then they'll go through the steps that it takes to prepare it and put it all together. And you see the glistening uh, look to the food and, and the steam coming off, and you can just imagine, oh, and I'm telling you at the wrong time about this, right? You're all probably like, oh, I'm getting... When you watch those videos, when you see food prepared, is that satisfying? Is that experiencing what it means to taste it, to see it, to touch it, to take it in? It's not the same. That's the way that the Bible describes what a real knowledge of the Son of God is. You know Him. You spend time with Him. You listen to His Word when He speaks to you, and you live that out, and you bear fruit in every good work. That's an experiential, or as some older reformers used to call, the experimental religion. That it's, you've been there and experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's not just a, a good message, not just some good words, but it's what's changed your life, and you're living it before other people. And they wonder, wow, there's something different. He knows something. He knows the Son of God. And what is that then going to result in? It's going to result in mature manhood. And so we're not going to be like little children all the time. We need to grow in our understanding of the truth. You see in verse 14 that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's pretty hardcore. Why, why do you take that little detour that just is, is warning us, warning us, warning us, children, watch out, there's all sorts of problems out there? Because they're out there. And we need to grow up in our understanding of the faith, in our experience of that relationship with Christ so that we would be on guard because there are fierce wolves who would want to devour us, because there are false teachers who would like to lead us astray. And that's why Paul told the elders at the Ephesian church in the book of Acts, chapter 20, that they should keep watch on the flock. Watch out for the flock because there are these enemies that are coming in. And so as you're a little child, you're susceptible. You're not mature yet. You can't fight off those wolves. But as you grow in maturity unto the fullness of Christ, now you might be like, wow, I'm not the fullness of Christ. That's for certain. He's the goal. And we'll never get there until eternity. But as we more and more die to self and live to righteousness, we start to take that image of Christ in our lives. And what does that look like when we're living that unity, when we're growing up into manhood? Verse 15, we're speaking the truth in love. It kind of fascinates me that Paul would decide to say that this form of communication is so important for the growth of building the body. We've got to speak the truth. If we shy away from the truth, a lost and dying world will continue going the way that they're going. We need to be bold proclaimers of the truth, but let's never speak the truth without speaking it in love, out of compassion for, out of concern for others, not putting ourselves up here and you down here. Oh, let me tell you all the truth you need to know. No, say it in love, with conviction, speaking that truth so that, 
You see how this works? We grow up in every way. And that growing up, he uses this other analogy from a house with its foundation to now a body with a head. And who is that head? It's Christ Jesus. We're to grow up in every way into the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. My prayer for us is that we would be growing as a body because each of these parts are working properly. We're each being grounded in the grace that we've received. We're, we're, we're identifying and implementing the spiritual gifts that he's given to us, acknowledging that these spiritual leaders are in place in order to equip us to get out there and do the work. That we're prayerfully considering, whether it's in a particular ministry or program of the church or it's just in the church out, out, outside of these doors, being a minister, using your gifts, and honoring the Lord in those. If you look at the back of your bulletin, you may pass over this every week, that there is a list on the back with a heading of ministry staff, and then there's a heading of, of leadership where you see the elders and deacons and, and other leaders within Redeemer. And I've heard of churches that will organize their bulletin a similar way and then put a another header that says ministers, and they'll put the whole congregation. You see that? That you are the ones who are the hands and feet of Christ. You are the saints who are being equipped to go do the work of the, of the ministry. Ministers in Christ's name for His glory. That's my prayer is that we as leadership will be equipping you and that you as God's people will be responding to the Spirit's pull in your heart and in your life and His gifting to go and to mature, to grow. And, and that's why at the very bottom of this page, this is what our mission is. And I want us to be so on mission. This mission statement isn't just for our leaders. This mission statement is for all the ministers of the congregation, every member of the congregation, that you would see this as your calling and your prayer. I'd like us to read it in unison together as we close, to make it a prayer of ours that this mission would be our own. Let's read together. The mission of Redeemer is to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study His Word, and proclaim His gospel to the world. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, you have gifted us to do this mighty task. In ourselves, we are unable to live up to this high calling, to be your witnesses, to be unified as a body, growing together in love. Lord, would you guard this congregation from any falsehood, and would you empower us and embolden us to live out the mission that you have called us in your great commission and in the great commandments that you've given us, Lord, may we respond out of hearts filled with your grace and mercy to live the calling that you've called us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our hymn of response is 359, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Let's stand together and sing verses 1 and 2 as the elders prepare the table for communion.